And if you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be reading from verse 14 through to verse 21. As our MC Nick said at the start of the service, welcome, especially if you're visiting with us this morning, a very special warm welcome. We, we hope and pray that you're encouraged and blessed by meeting with us this morning. I had one of those strange experiences last night where I'd finished my sermon a couple of days earlier and I was lying in bed and I just, you know, didn't feel a sense of peace. Uh, and I got up this morning and I rewrote the first part of the sermon. So it's, if you're following along on the sermon script or the sermon outline, it's a little bit different to where we start off with. But then when we get to God's word, it follows the same. But you'll see why in just a moment. So I'm going to read from verse 14 through to verse 21. And this is God's word. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your spirit. That as the Apostle Paul has just written and we just heard, that you would do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine or ask. Because we come before you this morning, Lord, the true and living God. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit from heaven that we would know Christ and that we would know by your spirit how much we are loved in him. Lord, thank you for hearing this great prayer for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the worst sermons I've ever heard was one by one of my favourite preachers, John Piper. It was a sermon that he gave at a conference in Sydney a few years ago. It's not that what he said was wrong. It wasn't even that he's not a good communicator. He is an excellent communicator. In fact, I think many would say one of the best in the world. What made it so bad was that he changed the order in which the talks would normally be given. He was preaching on a particular series, a particular topic. He'd travelled all the way throughout the world, giving this series of talks. And he said that he got bored by 
the order it, and so he thought he'd spice it up a little bit, and he'd change the order in which he would give them. And in so doing, change the order in which they were revealed in God's word. But, can I say, I think it really ruined everything he had to say. Because rather than beginning, and here's the key, rather than beginning his series of talks with an exposition of God's grace and what God has done for us in Christ, he flipped it on its head. And he started this whole series of talks on what we should do in response. And I think that totally destroyed everything he went on to say. Because what it meant is that everybody at the conference was from the very beginning weighed down with this sense of of law and of being condemned before God, of not being good enough, of not being zealous enough, of not being joyful enough to truly please him. And you know, can I say, it's an easy trap to fall into, and I think I almost fell into the same kind of thing which I saw in him this morning. I was going to begin, if you look in your sermon outlines, you'll see my introduction was going to be this. Do you love your sin more than you love Christ? Do you love your sin more than you love Christ? Now, can I just say, that's a good question. A question that I think we should all ask ourselves from time to time. But it's an absolutely terrible place to start. Because the question I should really start with is this question. Do you realise that God loves you more than your sin? Do you realise that God loves you more than your sin? That's the truth I should really start with. For it's how, if you are paying careful attention as you read through the New Testament, it's how the Apostle Paul starts every single one of his letters. Inspired by God's Spirit, he talks about what God has done for us in Christ. And then the second half of his letters is always in this order and what we should do in response. Because it's the truth of the gospel which actually gives us the freedom to change. It empowers us to hate and to turn away from our sin because we know how much we're loved. Because we know that we're accepted and that we're forgiven. Tim Keller explains his point like this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me just read that to you again so it sinks in. This is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe or maybe want to acknowledge. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You see, our relationship with God is founded upon the truth of what God has done for us in Christ rather than what we do in response. Do you see? It's that we have experienced what it means to be loved by God 
which makes us in turn want to relate to people in the same way. In fact, there's a great truth in Luke's gospel where Jesus talks about the woman who was, let's just say, leading a very colourful life and pours out the alabaster jar of perfume, probably a, a year's wages, and he rebukes his disciples, in particular Peter, who are all complaining about such waste. And he says, you don't understand. She's wet my feet with her tears, wiped them dry with her own hair, right? Anointed my feet with expensive perfume, but what have you done? Have, have you washed my feet when I came in? Have you, have you dried them? Have you done any active service like that? And here's the key. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven much loves much. If you still have your Bibles open, then take a look with me at what the Apostle Paul has to say in verses 14 to 19. It's one of the most beautiful and glorious Trinitarian prayers in the New Testament. And what's more, it sums up what the essence of the Christian life is really all about. You see, he begins in verses 14 and 15 by talking about how he prays to the Father, whom he says the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. What Paul means by that is that there is only one Father God of the living and the dead, of the Jews and the Gentiles, of human beings and angelic beings. That's why he refers to those who are in heaven and those who are on earth. Every category of person or angelic being or heavenly authority or ruler or power comes under God's fatherhood or his patronage. It doesn't come across all that um, clearly in English, but Paul is using, I think, a play on words here uh, to get across his point. In the original Greek, the apostle literally says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. By the way, the phrase for this reason is also really important. Paul's referring to everything he's just been saying, especially in the second half of chapter 2. Because as we saw last week, the gospel is profoundly cross-shaped in that it has a vertical and it has a horizontal dimension. Although, as Ben rightly pointed out, probably even that is too simplistic, isn't it? It's four-dimensional, as we'll see. But at a very basic level, it's vertical in that it shows us how we are reconciled as individuals to a holy and almighty God, but it's also horizontal in that it shows how the gospel has an effect of reconciling Jews and Gentiles. Paul says this in verse 6 of chapter 3. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul says that's the mystery that has now been revealed. And it truly is a miraculous mystery of what Jesus has done. So much so that he goes on to say in verse 10 
All of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms stand in awe at the victory that Christ has won. Last week I relayed to you a quote by Brian Chappell and it's so good, I'm just going to tell it to you again, okay? He says, The heavenly hosts are to look at those of us in the church with all of our sin, our differing personalities, our cultural prejudices, our colour differences, and they say... How did God do that? How did he get such difficult and disagreeable creatures together in one body, like we've already done this morning, to praise him? The manifold wisdom of the creator God really is great. And that's the reason why Paul falls down on his knees before the Father in prayer, because he just thinks, like with all the heavenly beings in heaven, How did he do that? He's in awe of what Jesus has done and he wants the Ephesians to experience more of the reality of this victory. And so Paul prays three things in particular. They are, he prays for God's strength and his power, for them to truly know Christ in their hearts, and then finally for them to know how profoundly loved and accepted they are. They're really incredible truths for us to focus on, aren't they? And my own prayer is that we will all know ourselves in our own experience this morning what Paul is talking about here. First of all, he's talking about that we will be strengthened with all spiritual strength and power. The same resurrection power which raised Jesus from the dead. This would have been especially pertinent for the Ephesians because we're told in Acts chapter 19 that when Paul first preached the gospel to them, uh, many who had practiced sorcery burnt their or brought all their scrolls together and they burnt them publicly. That is, what they saw in Jesus Christ was a higher power that could not or nor should not be manipulated or controlled. Paul prays specifically for them that they would know the Holy Spirit's power. To do what, though? To not necessarily be successful in the material, worldly sense, but for something infinitely more precious. And that is, Paul asks our Heavenly Father that they will be strengthened with all spiritual power so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. It's not that they will be seen to be powerful in and of themselves, but that by God's power, Christ himself will become more and more real in them. That takes the power of God. Now, this is absolutely... I think, a mind-blowing request. It's mind-blowing because obviously it's something that we are completely unable to do in and of ourselves. Instead, it has to happen. If Christ is to be known in us, it has to come from above, doesn't it? And the knowledge that Paul's talking about here is not just, you know, theological. It's not just what I mean by that. It's not 
purely mental or intellectual. It's relational. It's personal. It doesn't bypass the head, but it's not just the head. It's about knowing Christ Jesus in our hearts, or what the Bible refers to as our inner man. That's why Paul says in verse 19 that this is something that surpasses knowledge. Communion with Christ, I don't think it's something that we really talk about that much as evangelical Christians, unfortunately. Probably the closest we get to, isn't it, we talk about how's your walk with the Lord going. But we don't tend to as much as we used to talk about how's your relationship with God going. Maybe we talk about how's your quiet times going. We talk about theology or even devotional practice readily enough, but we're not well known, and we should be, for talking about our experience. How we know Christ. The scriptures exhort us to pray for a deeper and deeper knowledge of Christ and his love for us. Don Carson puts it like this in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's a great book, by the way. Good plug here. If you want to learn more about Paul's prayers in the New Testament, A Call to Spiritual Reformation by Don Carson. Great place to start. He says this, We cannot be as spiritually mature as we should be unless we are empowered by God to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of God. Doesn't that surprise us? We cannot be as spiritually mature as we should be unless we are empowered to grasp by God the limitless dimension of the love of Christ. It's so antithetical to the way we think spiritual maturity means, isn't it? We think that spiritual maturity is really all about being more zealous for God, for serving him more sacrificially in his kingdom. Now, both of those things need to be evident. But they are a response to something else. Our love for God flows out of a deep and abiding assurance and knowledge of his love for us. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Our love for God flows out of a deep and abiding assurance that he loves us. He loves you. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you have a profound sense of his presence, of his acceptance, of his mercy for you? If you do, you will love much because you you will know how much you've been forgiven. One of the marks of that being true is whether or not there's a sense of peace in your heart or restlessness. You know, Augustine has that famous line, 
Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in you. And you know, tragically, tragically, being religious in that external, busy sense of the term can make us the most restless. Because it's do and do and do and do. When you're resting in Christ and his love, there's a profound peace. And I think the evidence of it is it overflows from your lips in praise. We'll see this, God willing, in a couple of weeks, but one of the signs of being filled with the Spirit is gratitude, is thankfulness. Where you, find, where you see a thankful Christian, you see a Spirit-filled Christian. Where you see a grumbling Christian, a critical Christian, you see somebody grieving God's Spirit. We thank him because he's good to us, because he loves us. And each day his mercies are new. Yep. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. You are more sinful. You might be sitting there this morning thinking, oh, but if only you knew. No, you don't even know half of it. You are far more sinful than you give yourself credit for. But at the same time, you are more loved and more accepted than you could ever hope. If God has brought you to faith in Jesus, you're loved. You're forgiven. You're justified. All of what I'm saying is a result of God's loving initiative. Because remember, in Ephesians 2, we were dead. It was God who made us alive. We can't work it up or, or generate it. We can't choose for Christ by nature. It's like I saw somebody put on Facebook a little video to prove this point. It's a bit satirical, but it gets the point. They were walking through you know, a graveyard and they were trying to say to everybody, just choose Jesus. Just believe in him. That's the point, isn't it? You can't. You're dead. But the Spirit of God can raise the dead. It can bring into a dead heart saving faith. So saving faith is actually the work of God and something we humbly receive. We have to put our hope in God's love and his unwavering commitment to us. The Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says this in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. I got the right verse number this week. Misled you by a verse last week. Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Amen? In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Now that brings us to the third and final thing which the Apostle Paul prays for. Because he knows that all of this is a gift of God's grace. Part of our response to receiving it though is to keep coming back to the truth of the gospel. To place our trust 
and our confidence in who God is and what he's done for us. To stop all this restless running around. Focus on who God is and what he's done. And it's just this, to know how much we are loved in Christ. And that's why Paul prays that we would grasp something of the width and the height and the length and the depth of how great Christ's love for us is. Now, let me say again, do you realise how much you are loved? That, friends, is something that can only be spiritually received or discerned. Something that must be actually supernaturally revealed from above. For it's only once we have grasped this central truth that we truly start to grow in Christ's likeness. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I have to say it again. He who has been forgiven much loves much. But if you think you've only been forgiven a little, then you will love little. Do you see that you've been completely forgiven in Christ? That his love for you is greater than your sin? True godliness, true holiness is founded upon that. The question I think we all have though, is when we realise this. Because, yeah, but will the, our Father in Heaven really want to do that for me? I mean, for somebody else, yeah, maybe. But for someone who's not as committed like me, who's not as often zealous as me, who's deficient in loving others like me, let alone deficient in loving God as I should, like me, who continues to stumble in sin and flirt with temptation, like me. Have you ever felt like that? I think we all wrestle with that kind of doubt. But just take a look again at what Paul concludes in verses 20 and 21. Because incredibly, it's with this incredible promise of God's superabundant blessing. The language Paul uses here is so over the top that um, some people have called it a super superlative (laughs) but that's how confident he is of God's gracious generosity it's hard not to get super excited right that God will indeed definitely bestow a knowledge of his blessings on everyone who asks on anyone who turns to him on anybody who rests in him see he says in verse 20 now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine According to his power that is at work within us. Isn't that just a beautiful expression of how generous God is in his grace? You might be sitting there this morning and go, I hope so, Mark. I hope I can know more of God's love. And God's saying, you can't even imagine what I'm going to do. That's how much I love you. One of my lecturers in uh, Moore College used to say that we're often tempted to think that God measures out you know, his love and his grace and his mercy, you know, that so sparingly it's like an eyedropper. You know, it's just drip, drip, just really carefully measured. 
And it's so sparingly done because it's so precious is his love and his mercy that it's, it's almost held back with reserve. But the reality is his love and his grace is like a fire hydrant. He pours it out so freely and so abundantly. He does immeasurably more than we could ever imagine or ask. Will our Father in heaven reveal how much he loves you by causing Christ to dwell in your heart by the power of his spirit? You bet. In fact, it will be so lavish and so extravagant that it could be more than you could ever ask for or imagine. It will be overwhelming. Remember how Simon concluded the service a few weeks ago? Such a great boonstra way. Got the, got the jug of water and then he just poured it out into the cup and then he went the full boonstra and just kept pouring it all over the floor. That's God's love, isn't it? It's abundant. It's overflowing. Or you will remember Jim, um, Kim Jagar's illustration a few weeks ago of God's grace being so generous that it's like a lavish Devonshire tea. I don't think we're going to forget that analogy for a while. It's so beautiful, though, isn't it, that God's not stingy. Oh, he's a little bit of jam, <laughs> a little bit of cream, you know, measly little scone on the side that may be a bit stale. No, he dollops on the cream. He dollops a big, juicy raspberry jam on a great fluffy scone and then when you eat it it goes everywhere that's that's God's love isn't it he's poured out upon us the riches of Christ you know I think as he does this though he brings us to a deeper knowledge of his son the beautiful thing is that then it gives you the freedom it gives you the confidence to look at your own sin and go yeah I need to turn away but God's love comes before repentance even. God's love gives you the power to repent. Because you're loved. The big thing to remember, the love of God and what he has for us in Christ is so much greater than any love that we can have for him. Our relationship doesn't depend on our love for him. It depends on God's love for us. Can I just say, if you're discouraged, may he comfort you with the knowledge that he's present with you. He loves you. He loved you before you came to church this morning. And especially when if you're feeling weak or at the very end of yourself, as we saw last week, that's great. Because then you'll know more of his strength and more of his love. So look to the Father in heaven. Place all your hope in him. I just want to conclude with Psalm 121. Do you remember this? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. When you go out of church this morning, I hope you all do one thing. You look to the mountain and whatever worries are in your heart, thinking, I know where my hope comes from. I lift up my eyes to the hills. There is one greater than that mountain 
and he will help me because he loves me. He'll be faithful to me. He'll be there even when that mountain goes. God's love for you will be strong. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your great love for us in Christ. We're just blown away, Lord, by how great it is and we want to know more of it. So, Lord, we pray that you'll meet each and every one of us here this morning, that as we've seen the beautiful, fresh, clean air and sunshine this morning and the grandeur of the mountain, that that will pale into consider into comparison compared to the love that you have for us in Christ. Lord, may we rest in that today. May we revel in it and marvel in just how much we are loved. And Lord, as we rest secure in your love, may we turn away from those things which don't please you or glorify you. Lord, bless us, we pray. Thank you that you will do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Thank you. We praise you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. And let's give thanks and praise to God.